That was a little bit of Twelve's It from drummer Herlin Riley's new album Perpetual Optimism, with Bruce Harris on trumpet, Godwin Lewis on tenor sax, Emmett Cohen on piano, and Russell Hall on bass. That's the same band that played on Riley's 2016 album New Direction, which was his first album as a leader in over a decade. Herlin Riley is my guest on this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. Hello, I'm Phil Freeman, and welcome to episode 38 of the Burning Ambulance podcast. This show is part of the Osiris Podcast Network, which is partnered with Jambase, the premier online destination for fans of live music. Visit jambase.com to check out all the various Osiris podcasts, and if you want to become a supporter of Burning Ambulance, because we are totally listener-supported with no advertisers at all, please visit patreon.com slash burningambulance and become a subscriber. For just $5 a month, you'll get exclusive content, including custom streaming playlists curated by me, and eventually much more. The more subscribers we get, the better the exclusives will become, so join up today for just $5 a month. Herlin Riley is one of the genuine keepers of the flame where New Orleans jazz rhythm is concerned. He's been playing the drums since he was three years old and spent almost 20 years working with Wynton Marsalis in his band and in the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra. Before and after that, he worked with pianist Ahmad Jamal, first in the 80s and then again starting in the mid-2000s and continuing to the present day. In fact, I'm going to see him play with Jamal in just a couple of weeks, and you can hear him on Jamal's most recent album, Marseille. He hasn't recorded very much as a leader, though. He made his first album under his own name in 2000. It's called Watch What You're Doing, and he did another one, Cream of the Crescent, in 2005. That one was kind of a reunion of the Wynton Marsalis band from the 1990s. It had Winton on trumpet, Victor Goines on sax, Wycliffe Gordon on trombone, Eric Lewis on piano, and Reginald Veal on bass. The only guy missing was Wessel Anderson, the alto saxophonist. Both of those albums were on Crisscross, and after that, Riley didn't make another record as a leader until 2016, when he signed to Mac Avenue and put out New Direction. And now he's followed that up with Perpetual Optimism. Riley is a really interesting guy. He's had a career that's taken him all over the world, but he's always stayed rooted in the New Orleans tradition. So we talk about that a lot in this interview, both in terms of history and in terms of where he sees the music going in the future. We also talk about his time with the Marsalis Band, his work with Ahmad Jamal, and a lot more. He's got some really, really interesting stories that I think you'll like. So I'm going to play one more piece of music now. This is Connection to Congo Square from New Direction. And after that, you'll hear my interview with Herlin Riley.
So you're down in Louisiana? Yeah, I'm in Louisiana. I got my foot stuck in the mud, man. A long time ago, I was born and raised here. So we're below sea level, so sometimes it's like quicksand. You can't get out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? The, I just read in the paper that uh, Indonesia is talking about moving the city of Jakarta because it's sinking. Wow. No, I did not hear about that. Yeah, yeah. They, very, very they're built on a swamp, too, apparently. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so I got a bunch of questions. Um, I yeah. guess I'll just sort of start at the beginning. Um, you started playing drums at age three, I understand. So at what point did it become more than just a little boy liking to hit things with sticks? <laughs> Well, um, well, I've always had uh, a kind of, you know, I, I always aspired to be a, a musician. I've always wanted to have, have a musical connection because of my family. And um, and at one point, I, I played, you know, I, I played the drums all my life in church, and I played, you know, just, just always played, and there was just something I always do. And it just happened that I played, I also played the trumpet in my, um, like, starting from my junior high school years, you know, until I graduated high school and then after college. So um, I played the trumpet during that whole time. I was really serious about trying to be a trumpet player. I was, you know, the drums was kind of something that I had kind of an ability to do, but that wasn't my desire, my, you know, my really, my, my real desire. And so, um, so I, I was playing both. And at one point, um, I was called to play at a burlesque show on Bourbon Street, and it was a seven night a week gig. And what happened was that um, I was playing drums one night, and then I was playing um, trumpet the other night to relieve the, the drummer and the horn player because huh. um, they were working seven nights a week. And it just so happened that both of those guys left the band at the same time, left the show at the same time. So it was a show, and they had a whole routine with dancers and comedians and that kind of thing. And being a sub on the drum for the drum of uh, the drummer, I learned um, the whole routines of everybody. So it, it became easier to hire another horn player as opposed to hiring a drummer. So I took over the job um, at this club called the Five Hundred Club on Bourbon Street in New Orleans. So I took over um, the drum chair and. Um, and you know, and Wendell Brunius is a trumpet player. He was hired to be the trumpet player uh, on that show. And um, then from there, I just started getting more and more calls to play the drums. And during that time, you know, during that time, this was like you know, late, late, you know, late seventies, mid seventies, seventy four, seventy five. And um, inflation was in town, in, was in, and everybody was complaining about you know, um, and so they started cutting back on musicians um, in the clubs. Because you know it became less you know less expensive to hire um, just to have a rhythm section as opposed to just you know hiring horn players. So I started getting more calls to play in trio settings and hotels and that kind of thing um, as opposed to getting calls to play the trumpet. And just it just kind of snowballed from there. That was kind of the beginning, and then one thing led to another, and I played with Al Hurd and the One More Time Show and did all all these other things um, afterwards. But it kind of started from that 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 thing with the burlesque uh, show mm -hmm. when I was playing both mm -hmm. instruments. And did you do? Because it sounds like you learned a lot just by you know outside the classroom, just by being on the bandstand in a million different places. But did you study with anybody major when you were learning the kit? You know, I never really studied the drum set. Um, I studied with 
you know, I studied the, tr- the trumpet. As I, that was my really, that was the instrument I was really most serious about. But in my growing up, I had an uncle and my grandfather that played the drums. My uncle, his name was Walter Lasky. He played with Fast Domino and people like that, and, you know, and Little Richard, and you know, in the fifties. And, and so, and then um, my grandfather also he played the drums. His name was Frank Lasky, and he played with Louis Armstrong in 1913 in the Waves Home. So he was born in 1902, and so they. You know, so um, so they're, they're, they're the people that kind of put the sticks in my hands and and told me how to make play a press roll. And my uncle Poppy showed me how to play the the, um, the um, shuffle rhythms. We called him Poppy. You know, his name was Walter Lasty, but we called him Poppy. Uncle, that was my uncle Poppy. Mm-hmm. So he taught me how to how to play the shuffle rhythms and and how to use you know use different strokes on the drum but as far as formal lessons and that kind of thing i never really studied the drums um you know i never studied the drums from from an academic standpoint yeah yeah you do have a very unique style though you have i mean to my ear it's a very sort of light bouncing kind of style can you describe how you arrived at that kind of voice on the drums and who some of your like influences were (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, being growing up in New Orleans, there were a lot of different drummers, and um, you know, who, who who were very influential in the music. You know, Zigaboo Hordevess. Um, you know, there was Saeed Frazier who played the, the early New Orleans trad style. My grandfather played in that style. Um, my uncle Poppy, who played, the, you know, with Fast Domino, played shuffles, and, and Smokey Johnson, and and um, James Black, who played the whole the whole modern kind of style. Um, you know Earl Palmer. All these people were were, were people who, who who I was around and who who um who, who I got a little bit of this and a little bit of that from everybody that I could. Every, everybody who was around me, you know, I got in, I tried to get information from. And so, but at the center of it all, growing up here in New Orleans, there's a certain group that's here that's a part of our culture, that's a part of the the whole fabric of New Orleans music, and um, and being immersed in that and being growing up into that. You know, that's always at the core of all of the people I just named. That that's 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 in the core of their of their, of their playing. And so, um, stylistically I, I've kind of picked up things from, from each and every one of them. Ed Blackwell, you know, these people you know, they they were all people who were, who were around me and, and around that that grew up around me that I had access to because of my uncles, because of my uncles being musicians, um, I had they it gave me access as a young person to all these people. And also just being in New Orleans too, I had access to them. And so hearing all these different styles and hearing all these different um, ways of playing and, and you know growing up and playing in the burlesque show, shows and and doing Latin music and all these kind of different things that I've done over the years have have um, has has formulated has, has compiled to who I am now. And uh, so I've taken all that information and I've kind of just to be true to my own spirit and to my own. Um, development just being true as an artist i think that's the most important thing is, is finding your own truth on your whatever instrument it is and when you find when you search and you find your own truth it's just as unique as your own speaking voice you know or you know when you you know just like when you talk to someone on the phone when you speak for that's someone who knows you and who's familiar with you all you have to say is hello and they know who you are because they're under, they hear the sound of your voice so as an artist you want to develop the sound the same kind of sound on the instrument and the way to do that is through your experiences and to and take all the information that you've learned over the years and try to assimilate it into one kind of one into you into you and just and when you play 
allow yourself to be free. Have the audacity to just be free in your playing. But also, inside of that freedom, you still have to communicate with people who, are, who you're playing with and you're playing with. And so, so it's a very, very, um, you know, I've, I've just tried to, try to use all of the information that, that I've uh, uh, attained over the years and to put it into to use now. Yeah, yeah. In my playing. Now, for someone who doesn't play the drums but who's familiar with mm-hmm. jazz, which is me and probably a lot of people that listen, will listen to this interview, how could you? How would you explain briefly the difference between New Orleans rhythm and, say, New York or Chicago jazz rhythm and their overall like approach to the kit? Well, I would describe it as that. Um, you know, just 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 just, just to, to talk talk about New Orleans, which is what I really know. The music, the, the groove of New Orleans, really comes from the bottom up. Everything starts from the bass drum. Boom, 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 boom. So everything kind of it, it, the bass drum is such a such a integral part of the, the groove here in, in, in New Orleans, and it comes from the bottom up. And so, and versus in other places like playing, you know, if we played like in a New York kind of bebop kind of style, that that groove comes from the top down, from the from the ride cymbal down, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and so and so in New Orleans it comes from the bottom up, and oftentimes there's a dialogue between the bass drum and the snare drum. You know, and um, you know, and so, so in other music, I would say that that it comes, you know, to, to, like in bebop music, it comes from the top down. It's from the swim cymbal, you know. That 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 carries the groove. The cymbal in bebop music carry, kind of carries the groove, and um, and the, the, the snare drum and the bass drum is kind of just accentuate little parts of, of the of the um, of the tune of the rhythm. It kind of makes accentuation, but. Um, in New Orleans, music, the bass drum and the, and the snare drum is the foundation of the groove, and mm-hmm. it sets the groove up. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the first credit that I saw for you was on an Ahmad Jamal album from '85. Was that your first session, or was there stuff before <laughs> that? Oh no, I I, I had this stuff. Um, I had been playing ten years before that. You know, I had become a professional musician in '75. Mm-hmm. So um, I met I met Mr. Jamal in like 1982, but before then I worked with um, I did did things with um, Al Hurt, the great Al Hurt. I played with him, and I, but I guess Ahmad Jamal his his that wasn't the very first session. I we, had, we did a session before that um, called Digital Works. That's the, um, yeah, that's it, the one that I was thinking of. Yeah, so. yeah, it, it's called D- Digital Works. And um, so I guess that was the, the first major session that I did with a major artist. Mm-hmm. Um, I had did things before that um, with some local New Orleans kind of New Orleans artists, but as a major artist, I guess yeah, that was the very first one that I, I did. Um, yeah, with a major artist. Yeah. Now, how did you join his band, and what did he want from you as a drummer? Because he's not somebody who he's from Pittsburgh and Chicago and you know Detroit and yes. like that, which is a whole other kind of blues thing. <laughs> and then he's got the yeah. sort of classical overtones to what he does. So, where did you two kind of meet in the middle? Well, it just so happened that Imagine, we had a club here in, um, in New Orleans called the Blue Room, which was in the Fairmont Hotel, and in the Blue Room, the Blue Room would bring in great artists from around the world, you know, uh, Sarah Vaughn, Ella Fitzgerald, um, Dizzy Gillespie, people like that. And Ahmad Jamal happened to come in and play um, um, 
the, the room, um, and they had a big band that was backing him and that kind of, you know, backing all the artists, the big band. And um, so one of the people in the big band was a guy named Emery Thompson, and um, that's his Christian name. His, his uh, Muslim name was Omar Sharif. And um, they, he and Amai were, were good friends. Um, being being Muslims, they were they were good friends. And and so when Amai came to town, um, it just so happened that the drummer, his name was Peyton Crosley. He was um, he was leaving the band. And you know he had, he had some, you know um, his wife was having a baby or something, and he had to come, wanted to go home and put his you know for the birth of his child. And um, so he was leaving the band, and um, so Ahmad asked, asked Umar Sharif, who would be a good drummer that he could use for New Orleans? You know that that would be somebody who who would fit with his kind of music. And um, because Ahmad had recorded Poinciana with with um, Israel Crosby and Vernell Fournier on the drums. And Vernon Fournier is from New Orleans, and um, Point Siena was a big hit, it was a great big hit for for, for Ahmad. Mm-hmm. And Vernon Fournier played on it, and so Umar Sharif recommended me uh-huh. um, for the gig. He recommended me for the gig, and um, so what he did, I um, I was in New Orleans that day, and. He called me, and Mr. Jamal called me and asked me if I could fly to Phoenix, Arizona the very same day to, to start a gig with him. And um, he just went on the strength of, of uh, Umar Sharif's recommendation. And um, I, 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 he called me, and I, I, you know, he asked me if I could fly. I got some stuff with my gigs I had in town. I got on the plane that day. During that time, you could just jump on the plane without any kind of, you know, just somebody bought you a ticket, you jump on, like like a bus ticket or something. Yeah. So he bought he bought a ticket for me to get on a plane, and um, I flew to Phoenix, Arizona. We played at the Double Tree Inn, and um, we did one sound check, and he heard me play, and um, he was like, "Man, you got the gig." So after the, after that night, you know, he liked the way I played, and he said, "Man, you got the gig." So I, I started working with him in, in 1982, and, um, and it was great working with him because you know I still work with him now, even now. You know, Ahmad is 88 years old. We still have, have maintained a relationship for all these years, and we still work together. Um, yeah, I'm actually but, planning but, to uh, see you guys in a couple of weeks in Jersey. Oh yeah, man, it, it, he's 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 incredible. He's a, he's he's somebody that I really really aspire to 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 kind of emulate, and I would hope to be so blessed as I got as I got older to still have the stamina and the, the quality of life, and to still kind of have the have the, the desire to play and create music, you know, at his age, you know, he's 90, well, 88, 88 years old. He's soon, soon to be 89 this, this in July. And uh, he still has, he's still fresh. He's still just as incredibly fresh. And, and, and um, he has all of his facility to play. He has, he has his mental capacity. He's, he's, just, he's an incredible human being. So, um, you know, I, you know, I've, I've enjoyed a great association with him over the over the years. And yes, he's a man with a lot of wisdom, you know. So I've, uh, you know, and on and off the bandstand, he just has he has so much wisdom, and I've I've been very very fortunate to have lived, you know, been around him for all these years. Yeah, the uh, the album that you did with him in 2011, uh, Blue Moon, was interesting yes. because it was. You and him, and then Reginald Veal, who's a bassist you've worked with for decades, but not Jamal's regular guy, James Kamek. So, how did that dynamic change the music from your from your point of view? Well, um, 
Reginald, Reginald, Reginald Veal and I have, have shared the bandstand on many occasions with a lot of different artists. Just the two of us have played together um, with different artists from Japan um, to Mr. Jamal to Monty Alexander. We, went to, we started with Winton. Well, actually, we started with Ellis Marcellus playing together. And um, we, then we played with Winton. We played with Diane Reeves, um, Cassandra Wilson, Amai, you know, everybody. So he and I he used to call us the Black Mafia Rhythm Section. <laughs> you know, just the two of us. But anyway, um, um, when James Kamak, um, has he, he left the band for, for a stint, and Mr. Jamal asked me to recommend somebody to play the bass. And um, I, I called Reginald. I asked Reginald if he would come and do it. And he was, you know, he was glad to come and play, you know. So um, that's how, that's pretty much how that, how that came about, Re- Reginald. I, I recommended Reginald. He came and played. And, you know, Amon, you know, he liked the way he played and liked how, how he felt. And um, it definitely put changed the dynamic, uh, the dynamics of the band, changed the sound of the band, you know. You know, whenever there's a different musician in any um, situation, the, 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 the musical chemistry kind of changes, even though you, you play the same songs and because this music is designed to be, you know, individualized and stylized individually. So, um, you know, but, but, but then, you know, communicating with the others. So whenever there's another person that comes into the band, the, the musical chemistry and the sound changes. And, um, you know, and it, 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 sometimes it can be a good thing, sometimes it can be a bad thing, but in this case, it was a wonderful thing. Yeah. Yeah, and then James came back on the second record that you guys made a yes. couple years ago, Marseille. So, yes, and then and well, also uh, Manolo Badrena, the percussionist, was on that. So that was the same lineup that was on Digital Works, I think, right? For the four of you. Well, mm, um, or was he just on the other album, the other studio album that you did, the second one? Um, I think. No, Digital Works was not James Kamak. That was Larry Ball. Right. Okay. So the band I'm thinking of was on the other one, the one that was on Atlantic, and I can't remember the the title right yeah. now. Yeah. Um, Rossiter Road. There you go. Rossiter, yeah. Rossiter Road. Yeah. That was on Atlantic. That was um, yeah. That was that was Menorah Padrina and James Kamak. I think and on those two for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So so so, um, James and Manola has also you know enjoyed a long history with. with Mr. Jamal with um, and um, James has been there I guess the longest and so um, you know it's, so it's, it's you know he's an incredible human being and good, good to play with him so you your other big sort of musical relationship I think in most people's mind is with Wynton Marsalis because you first mm-hmm. recorded with him in like 87, 88 but I'm imagining yeah. that you knew each other for a while before that. So, I mean, can you tell me a little bit about your <laughs> relationship with him and, I guess, by extension, the whole family, probably? Well, yeah, you know, Winston and I, um, we've had a history, and we didn't know each other. We knew we, we had a history together that we didn't know about until, until later years when we became adults. You know, we, we both were, we played in, in a band called the Fairview Baptist Church Marching Band. And this band, a Christian band, this band actually was formed by Danny Barker. Danny Barker, um, for those who don't know, was a great, great guitarist and banjo player who left New Orleans in the 1930s to move to, away to New York to play with Cab Calloway and Billy Holiday and people like that. And he formed a band of all young people from 8 to 80. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, from 8 to 18. 
mm-hmm. something like that. And so it didn't matter if you had your instrument, you could just come and play in the band. You know, it didn't matter if you could sound, if you could play or not, if you sounded good or not. You just got into the, the whole frenzy and the whole the whole vibration of, of of a lot of just children playing jazz. You know, second line and street beat music. You know, New Orleans parade music. So um, so Winton and I were in the band together. I was doing these are the, the, the years I was playing the trumpet during these years, and so. We both um, had a controversy, had, had had an argument about about it one time. He said, man, did you, were you in the Fairview band? I said, yeah, I was in there. He said, I was in there too. I said, well, I never saw you. He said, I never saw you either. But someone came up with a picture that showed us both playing together. Winston was about eight. I was about 12, 12 or 13 or something like that. And so anyway, so there was a picture in proof that, that he and I had played together as children. And so <laughs> later on, yeah. So later on... Um, Fast forward to like around 1986, or 86, 87, something like that. We were playing at the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, and I had been playing with his dad. You know, Winston had had you know like an 81 or so. He had gone out to to, to Juilliard and then hooked up with uh, Art Blakey, and you know by then he had won Grammys for you know the classical and jazz music at the same time, but. Anyway, we were playing at the Northern Jazz and Heritage Festival about 1986, 87. And um, I was playing with Reginald Veal and Ellis Marcellus. It was a trio. It was his dad. And his dad had hired Reginald and myself to play with him. And um, um, so Winton came, he, he did his set. And then he, after he did his set, he rushed over to the jazz set where we were playing. And he sat in with us. He sat in with, you know, with the trio. He sat in and played with us. And then afterwards, you know, he told his dad, hey, man, you know, I really like playing with your band, your band members, man. You see, you think, would it be okay if I hire those cats? <laughs> so his dad was like, sure, man, these people are, you know, everybody's free will is out here, free, you know, free will agent. They can do what they want to do. You hire who you want. So, you know, um, so later on, about two years later, in, 19, in December of 87, he hired Reginald to come and play. And uh, in, in, in uh, February of 88, he called me. And um, and so we became. Uh, he called me to play in his quintet. It was a quintet at the time. Went to Marcellus Quintet, and we uh, we flew to New York. You know, well, Reginald was already there because he had moved to New York. So I, he flew me to New York, and uh, that became um, the beginning of a 17-year relationship. Through you know, through to went to Marcellus Quintet to the septet, well, sextet first of all, the addition of Wes Anderson, and then. The Quint, the Winston Marcellus Septet, which 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 was um, with Wycliffe Gordon, um, Wes Anderson, Ty Williams, Winston, um, Reginald Veal, and Marcus Roberts. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was and yeah, that was a septet. And so um, we we enjoyed from that time. Then he, then um, I had association with the um, very the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra, playing with the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra. So so. I had 17 years of playing, of, of being involved with Winston Marcellus and his organization and, and, and all the bands and, you know, and uh, learned so much from him. And also, he's an also, he's younger than I am, but he's definitely a mentor and, um, and someone who I, I, I look up to and, and have the utmost respect and love for. Yeah, yeah. There's a few of those records in particular that I want to ask you about. The first is the one, I th- which I think was your first record that you made with him, which was The Majesty of the Blues which is yes. 
it's a somewhat strange record. I mean, it's got a sermon in the middle of the second half. So, I mean, what you know, what are your memories of that project? Well, um, first of all, the memories of that project was, you know, um, it's the Majesty of the Blues, and and um, we talked. We, we, we often at times have philosophical conversations, and Winton was always, you know, reading and and studying and. And noticing that a lot of times the jazz critics from even back in the forties were saying that jazz was dead, you know they've all you know jazz is dead, you know, and there's always this new stuff, but jazz is dead. And um, so Winton decided to write a, a sermon that 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 talked about premature autopsies, premature autopsies. So jazz is which was to say that jazz is still alive and it's all it will be alive because it's creative music it's music that's in the moment it's music that will that will that's living breathing art form and so you have to be be careful about the premature autopsies you know and mm-hmm. putting jazz to you know killing jazz off you know saying that it's dead and you know it's it's no it's no more so and so that that was that that's what the whole that whole sermon kind of thing was about and uh, but but it was also but that was at the end he, he did it in a, in a way that was a depiction of a, of a jazz funeral um, a New Orleans jazz funeral and that sermon is you know we play a dirge over that sermon so it's a dirge and in, in, the, in the New Orleans jazz funeral normally when, when there's a dirge and then there's a happy part of the music the happy side of the song and I guess that leads me to a whole nother discussion about the New Orleans jazz funeral, which is um, in the New Orleans kind of jazz funeral, we, we play homage and pay respects to the departed, uh, especially if there's a music, their musician. And what we would do, we, we would play a dirge when they would leave the church or going en route to the cemetery. They play a, a, ha- a slow kind of mournful dirge, you know, paying respect to the to the departed. And also acknowledging the, the loss mm-hmm. in, a, in, in a mournful kind of way, we, we, we mournful we, we mourn the loss of the departed. But um, we play when we come back from the um, when they the, after the after the after the priest the, the uh, priest or the pastor say some say a few words at the cemetery over the body. We play a happy song, and this is the um, we play and that that's the rejoice that this body or this person who's, who's gone, you know, they're going to a better place. And we, we rejoice in the fact that they once live and now and they've gone, but now, you know, we so we do what we call cut the body loose and then they play a happy song. And um, that's the, the, and that's the tune in this uh, Majesty of the Blues, that's over on the third day. So there's a mournful dirge in the beginning. Um, I forgot what it's called, but the next, the, the happy song is called Over on the Third Day. Mm-hmm. And um, so that whole album is, is, is kind of a depiction of a New Orleans jazz funeral. And speaking of Danny Barker, he had Danny Barker to record on that record. I think that's the only thing that we've ever, we ever did recorded with Danny Barker together was that record. And uh, he had Danny Barker and another New Orleans trumpet player by the name of Teddy Riley was on there. And um, Fred Lonzo was trombone player he's, he's from New Orleans as well and um, um, yeah so they, they, they were the trumpet players and you know, they were the, they were the New Orleans addition to that to the septet yeah. at that particular time I'd also so, I'm also curious about 
uh, the album Marsalis plays Monk because Monk is a hugely important figure, I think, in terms of rhythm in jazz. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, were there any were there any Monk drummers that you had in mind when you were considering your approach on that record? No, not really. Um, not, not really. I, I kind of, I, I, you know, of course, I, I listened to Frankie Dunlop and I listened to, you know, I listened to the stuff that how Art Blakey played with, with Monk and, you know, but I, um, Shadow Wilson and people like that. But I, I listened, but I, um, but I, I was really, really, um, not trying to emulate or trying to, try to, to, to really, really play like any other drummer, you know, it's, it's you know, so in doing that, I just played myself. I played like I, how how I played, mm-hmm. and um, but it's still with this kind of sensibility of, of Monk's music and you know hearing hearing it and understanding the form and how the music um, is shaped. You know, I just tried to play myself within those kind within those rhythmic shapes of the music. Yeah, yeah. There was another one of the uh, the Marsalis Standard Time albums that really struck me, which was the fifth one, the Midnight Blues, the one with the strings. Have you I'm done stuff sure. like that, like an album with strings or anything like that? No, I've done sound check, uh, soundtracks. We've done soundtracks together, you know, with strings. And um, he had a piece that he wrote called All Rise, which mm-hmm. was written for, uh, you know, for... It was written during the time of the, the, the turn of the century, the, the millennium turn, um, and so. Um, but that that was recorded with, with strings and a whole choir, a whole uh, choral orchestra, you know, choir. And um, so, but it's recording. Any recordings? No, no. I, I don't. I don't. I can't think of any recordings that I've done with with strings. In what way does that limit you or challenge you? Like, can you? improvise as freely as you want to knowing that there's like a string section and a conductor that has their cues that they have to hit well um you know you learn how to how to adopt you know um you learn how to adopt and overcome you know as a professional i think that's that's one of the challenges that we have that we're faced with all, all the time you know so each conductor um is the nuances of how he conducts was different. You know, each one was different, and um, so um, some some conductors have a strong upbeat, which is the downbeat, and it seemed like the whoever the orchestra people they know they understand how to play with the conductor. You know how to where, where his motions are, where you know where, where he wants more, where he wants less, or where his beat is. You know, so learning to adapt to each conductor was always a challenge, and. Um, I must say though, when in speaking of that, the, my favorite conductor that I worked with was Seiji Ozawa, and um, because you know he he actually, you know there was a he worked with the drummer, you know, and there's a, there's an almost understood thing that in a jazz band the drummer is the conductor, you know it, everybody plays to the beat of the drummer, you know in a in a jazz kind of band setting, in a, in the classical setting the conductor the people the man at the podium with the baton he's the conductor and everybody plays to him so when when you when you bind when you combine the two the jazz band and the, the classical orchestra together you know um you know so who do you follow who do you follow do you follow the drummer or do you follow the conductor my job as a, as a drummer i had to follow i had to try as best i could to follow the conductor and to to be on the same page we had to follow try to find the, to come together mm-hmm. and um but 
in working with Sage Ozawa, Sage Ozawa and I, we actually, he sat down with me. He came came to me and he sat down and we talked about it. And uh, also Kirk Mazua too. Kirk Mazua, I say him. He's, uh, but um, he came he came to me, we sat down and we looked at the music and we talked about, you know, certain parts where I would actually be control the time and certain parts where, you know, I had to lay out and, and allow, allow the conductor to do his job. So, you know, in, in, in collaborating, we, you know, we had to have to kind of come together and to find to find to find that happy medium to um, to perform. Yeah, yeah. And I was mm-hmm. I was also listening to the live at the Village Vanguard box recently, and I was curious about the piece City Movement because it's like forty minutes of music, Ooh. and I'm assuming it's like heavily scored. <laughs> so, how much of your part was on the page, and how much of it was you in in the moment? Well, you know, Winter never wrote out rhythms for me to play. Well, maybe he, he kind of wrote ideas. He kind of wrote ideas for me to play. And, you know, he wanted me to, to perhaps play a certain, with, with a certain kind of idea. But he never really wrote parts for me um, in that way. But he would, write, he, would write, he would write out, a well, the parts that he would write out for me was just parts that had the, um, the form on it. You know the different sections and when they would change tempos, when they would you know when you would um, change times, when you would go play soft, when you would lay out. So I just had to read the music in a way, but I could still be free and, and play my my own ideas while mm-hmm. reading the music. And that's how he always wrote for me when he did when we did um, Blood on the Field, which was which is a um, piece that he ran a Pulitzer Prize for. I wrote I did it my own parts. He just wrote out the, the he wrote out. He almost had blank pages for me with just <laughs> bars and slash hash marks, notating where we were, the stops and starts would be and where the time changes and those kind of things would be. But I wrote, I, I did my, I've always done my own parts. He allowed me, you know, to, to play my own, be myself inside of playing his music. So uh, I really, you know, and I think that's, I think that's, that's, I think that's important that the drum, you know, that the you know that, that there's some flexibility if you're going to call this music jazz and you know creative music there has to be some flexibility um for creativity there has to be some room for creativity within the music now this music this piece you're talking about city movement is a long piece it's a long form this is when during the time winton was experimenting with writing long form pieces you know most pieces are short form which is um maybe ter- 32 bars and then everything it just keeps repeating you know, our blues is, you know, a lot of times blues is just, is just 12 bars, you know, and it, it repeats over and over. But Winton was experimenting with writing um, long form pieces. And um, and these pieces just took you to different kind of moves. And he used the theme city movement to the and, and depiction of uh, action that goes on in the city. You know, there's a thing with traffic. There's a thing with uh um, like a power driver, you know, building the skyscraper or something. There, there, there's a there's a piece, there's a, a section there called the skyscraper. Um, so it's all about depiction of a city, uh, musical depiction of a city. With Winston's musical depiction of a city, and uh, within that, he allowed me to, to just create my own drum parts, you know, and following the music that he had written out. Yeah, yeah. On your first record as a leader, watch what you're doing from 2000. Uh-huh. You wrote eight out of the nine compositions. Were those pieces yes. you had written down over the years and hung on to, or did you put every, or did you write them all for that album, like in '99, let's say? 
Well, you know, over the years, I, I, I'm always, you know, um, writing music and playing. I kind of doodle at the piano. I'm not a piano player, but I kind of I can doodle a little bit at the piano, and I hear things. I hear melodies, and I hear hear ideas that come come into my head, and and um, and you know, I just started putting, you know, writing them down and and kind of record, you know, record them over like a my little. I had, you know, during the time I had a little little Walkman recorders and stuff or whatever it, it, just recording the music with, with, you know just kind of some kind of way documenting the idea and in doing so um, when, I, when I had an opportunity to record I didn't want to really record a lot of cover music I wanted to you know I wanted to to, do, to be creative and to, to do make, put my own voice my own spin on, on with, you know my own ideas together and so um, so that was that, that kind of motivated me. I had music, you know, I'm always writing music. Even right now, I'm still, I have music that I've written that's, that's just on paper. It just, you know, I haven't brought, haven't presented to anybody to play yet. But, you know, I'm always, ha- I always have music that's something, something, there's a radio that's always playing in my head and I just kind of, sometimes I put stuff down. And uh, it just so happened that I had had music that I had put together for that record. You know, that was, you know, obviously I did it before, before it was time to record. Mm-hmm. But uh, when it was time to record, I had material to to record. Yeah. And your second record, Cream of the Crescent, from 2005, mm-hmm. that was kind of like a reunion of the Winton band minus Wes Anderson. But you and Winton are very different writers. So, I mean, how would you contrast the music you made on that album with the music you made with those guys in other contexts? Well, you know, you know, we deal with this art, man. You know, everybody has a voice, and everybody has has their own ideas. And you know, my my drumming voice is different than Art Blakey's drumming voice. Just like you know, Winston's his writing is different from um, from Duke Ellington's writing. You know, he, even though he may have he may have uh, you know heard Duke Ellington and kind of stole some of the ideas from Duke Ellington, but his, how he put, how he formulates them and put them all together is his own ideas. And it's the same with me. When I, when I put, when I write music, it's my own ideas. It's my own truth. It's, it's when I'm not trying to, to emulate anybody. I'm not trying to emulate Winston. I'm not trying to emulate Duke Ellington. I'm not trying to emulate Monk, even though they're great influences. But you know, I think artists have to be true to their own spirit and to, the, to their own, whatever that source is that comes to them. You know, and give the, the music that whatever comes to them. You have to be true to that and write that. And so that's what I did. I, I just kind of wrote my own ideas. And um, when I played with Winston's band, you know, it was his ideas and it was his music. It, it was his, you know, his bringing. We brought his ideas to life. And when I recorded with my music, you know, they brought my ideas to life. Mm-hmm. How does? Uh... How does the time that you spent as a trumpet player does how does that feed into the way you compose in terms of like putting together horn charts and stuff like that? Like, well, it um, you know I think I think just my engagement with music, period. Um, whether hearing it, uh, playing it, or dancing to it, you know, all those things has an has has has, has an effect on you on your psyche and on your being, and. Um, being a trumpet player, um, um, that doesn't really make that much. It makes it makes a difference to me that I understand I understand form and I understand um, you know harmonies and that kind of thing. But when 
writing a, a piece, I'm not I'm not hearing it as a as a trumpet player. I'm just hearing it as a musician. I'm just hearing the music. I'm not hearing the trumpet. I'm, I'm just hearing the music. And you know, sometimes how I write, sometimes I have to I have to be very very careful that I, I just that I write within the range of of the instruments that I'm writing for. Because <laughs> sometimes I just I just hear the music and I just write it down and I'll present it to the guys. Sometimes say, Hey man, we can't play this. This is too high. Or, or this is not in our range, or you know, so I just hear the music and I just kind of put it together, and I don't think in terms of, uh, you know, the trumpet or the, you know, or, or you know, the, I just I just hear the music and I just kind of put put it together, and once I get it together, then I, I kind of arrange it for how how which which voice I'll I'll assign to which instrument. Yeah, yeah. Your uh, your two most yeah. recent albums, New Direction and Perpetual Optimism, have mm-hmm. a band of like younger guys. So, can you yeah. talk about why you chose those guys? Well, you know, I chose those guys because, first of all, you know, I'm, I'm a little I'm older now. I'm, I'm sixty two. I'm sixty two, and um, so as a sixty two year old drummer for a record company to 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 give you a shot and give you an opportunity to record some music. You know, I wanted to make it make sure that that the music had had a freshness to it and had um, had some kind of um, I wanted to, to, to use I wanted to use younger musicians also because as a musician I'm trying to stay relevant and um, I'm also trying to 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 model um, at this point in my career model myself kind of like after Art Blakey to have some some you know keep continue have a continuation of using young musicians and trying to get them exposed and also trying to get them heard and also help them have them enhance my music, you know, and, um, and I still want, cause I, you know, as you get older, I still want to engage. I want to be, I want to always be able to engage with younger musicians, you know, like Ahmad Jamal is in, you know, he's, he's, I was a young musician when, when I, when I started working with him and we, we, we've shared a history of, of almost 40 years, you know? And so, uh, and so, you know, having now I'm it's my turn. I'm I'm at I'm at a certain point in my life now where I can look back at look look back at young musicians and say, Hey man, this guy can play, he can play, he can play. Come on play with me. You know. And so that's pretty basically where I where I was with that. I wanted to have a freshness. I wanted to have some guys that, that were were kinda of up and coming who, who who no one had kinda of really known of and to kinda of, kinda of help help to to jumpstart their careers as well. Yeah, I like Bruce Harris a lot, the trumpet player, because he. Uh, I've heard his album that he did on Positone, and I've heard him on other people's records, and he does. Mm-hmm. He has a really broad range because his own album is very sort of traditional, sort of fifties hard bop. But then I've heard him on other records playing more adventurous, kind of forward-looking music. So is he somebody that you can throw pretty much anything at? Yes, yes, he's a. All those guys are excellent musicians. You know, Bruce, Emmett, um, Russell Hall, um, Godwin, they're all excellent musicians. And um, so the music that I wrote, you know, I wrote especially for, for um, Perpetual Optimism, some of that stuff is kind of tricky and kind of, you know, and, you know, and, but I, could, I, I was able to just, you know, present the music to them, present the paper. I presented the paper to them, you know, the notes on the paper. And we talked about it, and they were able to interpret what I had on paper and bring it to life. And, and that's that's the mark of an artist, you know, a true artist who, who's, who's not stuck on the paper, 
but you know, get the information from the people, put it inside them, assimilate it, and bring it and bring the music to life through the instrument. And these guys are, you know, were, were wonderful um, to work with in that regard. You know, I just, you know, my, as a as a drummer, sometimes um, my music is, has had some some shady areas, some kind of crazy areas sometimes. And these guys were able to 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 help me and to to kind of look at the music and say, hey man, we should be doing a D flat, you know instead of an A flat or whatever, you know, they would kind of help me, you know, to kind of shape the music. But, but in doing so, what happened, they just brought the music to life. And I think we have two, two wonderful recordings with this, with this core group of musicians. So once you kind of heard what they could do on the first album, did it open up the, the landscape for you when you were writing for the second one? Like that you knew that much more about what they could do and what they would do and stuff like that? Yeah, well, you know, as you, the, the more time you spend together, the more you, you know, the more jail that you have, and the more familiar you become with one another. And um, so yeah, so you know, definitely first doing the, after doing the first one, I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any restrictions, but I felt a, a more of a more comfort in writing what I wrote, and that they would that they would bring the music to life, you know. So yes, yes, over time, you know, when you have you work with people. Uh, it gives you a certain kind of, um, you know, you develop a, a certain kind of chemistry and trust that you can have with, with musicians. Mm-hmm. You're uh, you're someone who's identified with the the preservation of the New Orleans drumming style, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your relationship with Shannon Powell, another drummer who's <laughs> kind of playing that role, because you guys received an award for for your work in 2010, right? Yes, we did. We did. We received the award, and, and that's going to Switzerland. Um, they gave they gave us an award, an award there. Uh, but Shannon and I are like brothers. Um, he's he's a few years younger than I am, about five years or so younger than I am. But um, you know, we 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 grew up around the same influences, and um, we've played kind of like a, a lot of the same gigs. We've been called for the same gigs, and you know, our influences now, our our you know, has been similar. Um, from the church influence to Mr. Danny Barker to playing with my uncles, um, you know, in playing with Winston and Harry, you know, we've 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 shared a lot of lot of lot of lot of, lot of the same musical experiences, and so, you know, he and I just did a show together on Sunday, you know, where we worked at the Jazz and Heritage Festival, um, where we've done we've collaborated on several shows together, and uh, playing the drums and. And trying to trying to keep the tradition of the New Orleans group alive, we've both become become band leaders, and you know we're we we're both kind of taking on our you know going on our own avenues musically speaking, um, and but we're still at the core of who we are. The tradition of the New Orleans group is still there, and um, so Shannon is someone that I have utmost respect for, and um, you know he's like my brother. You know, he, Shannon is really like my brother. We, we like my little brother. We, you know, we 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 share we share a lot of common interests. Our wives get along together, and they, you know, they were our wives were at the, at the uh, jazz festival. They're walking around and they'll deal with each other and kind of being sisters. So he and I are very very um, Shannon and I are very very close with each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What uh, what do you think is sort of what do you think is to be done with the New Orleans musical tradition in the sense of keeping it from becoming just like touristy nostalgia music? You know, because I mean, I've heard people, I think I, I think 
I've heard people saying, you know, that some of the bands that are playing on the streets now are just not that good, you know, and stuff like that. So what's, I mean, what's your, what's your take on it? Is, is the music in safe hands or is it, you know, losing ground? Well, you know, I like to say that I like to think that it's in safe hands. I like, I like, I like to keep the, I like to hold, I always like to hold on to the optimism, but, um, but, but I know there, there are some challenges um, in this, you know, with with, with the, uh, the tradition and also with the culture, and that is um, after Hurricane Katrina, there were a lot of people who left the city, uh, a lot of lot of people, but there are a lot of people who came. There, there, most of the people came back, but then there are a lot of people who, who, who moved into the city, who who are not of this culture and um, have come in and um, they have. You know, in a lot of cases, there's gentrification going on, and, and and so a lot of people who who are here have been moved out, and you know can't pay, can't afford to pay the taxes and kind of kind of on their properties, kind of stuff. And so there's a lot of things that's, that's changing dynamically in the city. Um, um, but I would like to think that the culture will still be intact. You know, there's some there's a whole lot of things that's still intact as well that's still going on. So, but there are some challenges, and I guess as a musician, one of the things is as um, as a musician, is to to make sure that I, I, I incorporate some kind of New Orleans groove or some kind of New Orleans music into whatever I do. So I, I you know I always close I close my shows a lot of times with Two Tima, which is a tune written by Danny Barker. You know I you know I, I try to play some kind of some kind of traditional tune um, within my you know within my sets. You know to just to try to keep the keep the tradition of New Orleans groove alive. Um, but there is it's, it's being challenged, and not only are, you know people moving in, um, other people the audiences are coming in are changing, but a lot of the musicians are a lot of musicians are changing. A lot of the musicians are coming in from different parts of the country, um, and some of them are you know are, are trying to assimilate to New Orleans culture, but a lot of them are, are really challenging the culture and doing their you know doing their own thing because that's what they know. They, they know what they, where they come from. They know what they've been raised on. They know what they've been doing. And so a lot of them are coming in doing that. And, and um, you know, and t- taking, you know, and, 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 uh, and taking a slot, um, uh, a spot at a nightclub or a spot at a, at a, at a you know, a, a venue where that would be a New Orleans group. But, but now it's, it's becoming homogenized and doing just everything. And so um, the, the, the culture is being challenged a little bit, but, I still, but we still have the Mardi Gras Indians, and we have the parade, you know, the parades on Super Sunday, and we still have Second Line. We still have the Mardi Gras, you know, I mean, the uh, the funerals, jazz funerals. But things are changing, things are evolving, and things are changing. And uh, but I, I would like to hold hold on to op- optimism that the culture will still be intact. Mm-hmm. What uh, what do you think of? what the the preservation hall jazz band has been doing because i feel like their last couple of albums have been really interesting the one they did in 2017 felt really modern and incredibly high energy but you could still hear that new orleans root in it i mean you know what do you are you aware of what's going on with them musically well not in depth but i've heard you know heard some of the stories and i've seen you know i've I've seen some i've seen them play a little bit but i'm not really really in depth with what's going on but they're 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 sliding out out of uh, also out of the, the tradition of the um you know it's but things things are evolving things are evolving 
you know, the guy Benji Ben Jaffe is a younger guy, younger musician. Um, Benji's like in his early forties or something, and um, so they, they have a whole another. His dad started the Preservation Hall. Alan Jaffe started the Preservation Hall, and during the time when he started it, it was all old men who were, who were, who had played 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 the you know, all this kind of music just just in, in like in the sixties. Mm-hmm. And these men were fifties and fifty and sixty years old. You know, they were born. Uh, most of these guys were born around the turn of the century. And so when they when they started Preservation Hall, it was you know like around in the sixties, and they you know it was all the old older men. And so the name fit them because it was perfect. You know, preservation. It was they, they were they were the old guys who was preserving the music. And but now you know it's a, it's another kind of thing now because um, it's another generation that's in there. That's, that's 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 has the name and that's 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 carrying you know the name of Preservation Hall and the music is evolving and it's it's, it's changing. So uh, you know I don't know where, it, where it's going to go or what's going to happen, but um, but it, it is changing. Yeah, and the other guy that I think about a lot recently is uh, who you may know is uh, Christian Scott who's, you know, combining New Orleans rhythms and rhythms from all over the Caribbean and Africa and everywhere with electronic music and hip-hop and playing some really ferocious trumpet on top of it. I mean, are you, you know, he's he's from down there. Are you, how aware are you of his work? Well, Christian, I, I, Christian is, yeah, yes, he's a, he's, a, he's another, you know, he's a younger musician. Again, you know, he's, he's uh, Christian is around, I guess, late 30s or so, uh, in his 30s or you know, maybe 40 I don't know if he's up to 40 yet but um, yes Christian is another musician who's who's, um, who's, who's, who's who's evolving and who's changing the landscape of the music and um, and I, I, I like like the fact that he's using you know a lot of the African rhythms and New Orleans rhythms and stuff and kind of combining it and put it together and I guess that's you know you have to as I said earlier you know you have to as an artist, you have to be true to to the influences and things that 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 you've heard that that's influenced you and that's made made you who you are. And I think that's that's no more than um, that's that's the logic of what happens. You know, I, I'm not playing. I don't play like Saeed Frazier or play like you know any of those guys who play. You know, so the music has evolved. Music is constantly evolving, and so um, you know, it's just I think it's it's it's. It's good that it's evolving, but I think what's important is that as, as as the music evolves, that the artist is still connected to the root and to the source, and I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, that you still stay, stay stay connected to the source and stay connected to the root. You know, you may it may take you somewhere else, but still, you know, understand and be connected to to the source and to the root of what where where it's coming from. Okay, that was my interview with Herlin Riley, and that's the end of this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast, which is part of the Osiris Podcast Network. Visit jambase.com to check out all the various Osiris podcasts on their dedicated page. And if you'd like to support this program, please visit patreon.com slash burningambulance and become a subscriber for just $5 a month. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you'll come back for the next one. Oh, Cyrus.